Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 153. We'll begin the third section of the Tanakh with the Psalms and a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about the slippery slope. TanakhCast began on April 4th, 2013 and proceeded to cover the five books of the Torah in episodes 2 through 49. Episode 51 marked the transition to the middle section of the Tanakh, the prophets. Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, which we wrapped in the previous episode. So now, in episode 153, we turn to the final section of the Tanakh, the Ketuvim, the Hagiographa, or the Writings. I'm not alone in regarding the Ketuvim as the most eclectic section of the Tanakh, consisting of many different genres of writing. It's a hodgepodge of contexts and ideologies and attitudes and even languages. What in the hell was that all about? Many of the books in this section were written while the prophets from the middle section were active, and they managed to find their way into the official canon quite early in history. So... Why were they not included in the middle section? Who knows? But here are some hypotheses. The books did not, on its face, seem to be divinely inspired, or perhaps they didn't adhere to a party line. Psalms and Proverbs definitely checks out for the latter. Other books, like Ezra, Chronicles, and Daniel, came rather late to the game, so they wouldn't have been included in the middle section, but we find evidence in the Mishnah that these books, including Job, were regarded as canonical in the generation before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE. We also find evidence in the Mishnah and Talmud that the final lineup for the Ketuvim was not settled even in the 2nd century CE. There wasn't even an official name for the third section at that stage, and we have evidence from the texts themselves and other texts from the period about their late entry into the canon. And what a lovely canon it is. For example, Song of Song contains two Greek words, as does the Book of Daniel, which also refers to the breakup of the Macedonian Greek Empire by name. Ben Sira, alternatively known as Ben Sirach, was a Hellenistic Jewish sage and allegorist who lived around 180 BCE. He is the author of the Book of Ben Sira, which is also known as the Book of Ecclesiasticus. Even though his book was not included in canon in the Tanakh, as the rabbis of the Mishnah make a point of telling us, Ben Sira was well-versed in Torah and prophets and refers to them often in his writings. By the way, he makes no mention of Daniel or Esther. The Jews of Qumran, the purported authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, also don't mention Esther in the many texts of theirs recovered by archaeology. Mishnah Adaim recounts the vigorous debate about the canonicity of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. Quote, All sacred scriptures render the hands impure. The Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes render the hands impure. Rabbi Yehuda says, The Song of Song renders the hands impure, but there is a dispute regarding Ecclesiastes. Rabbi Yossi says, Ecclesiastes does not render the hands impure, and there is a dispute regarding the Song of Songs. Rabbi Shimon says, Ecclesiastes is among the relative leniencies of Bet Shammai and the relative stringencies of Bet Hillel. 
Rabbi Shimon ben Azai said, quote, I have received tradition from the mouths of 72 elders on the day they inducted Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah into his seat as the head of the academy, that the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes render the hands impure. Rabbi Akiva said, Mercy forbid, no one in Israel ever disputed that the Song of Song renders the hands impure, since nothing in the entire world is worthy but for that day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And if they did dispute, there was only a dispute regarding Ecclesiastes. Rabbi Yochanan ben Yoshua, the son of Rabbi Akiva's father-in-law, said, quote, In accordance with the words of ben Azai, Thus did they dispute, and thus did they conclude. So let it be written, so let it be done. By the period of the Talmud, we have a Ketuvim, but the batting order established by the rabbis differs slightly from the order we use today. Bava Batra 14b reproduces a Baraita, a teaching from the period of the Mishnah that for some reason didn't make the cut. Quote, the order of the writings is... Ruth and the Book of Psalms, and Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs and Lamentations, Daniel and the Scroll of Esther, and Ezra and Chronicles. And according to the one who says that Job lived in the time of Moses, let the Book of Job precede the others. We do not begin with suffering, but Ruth is also about suffering. This is suffering, which has a future of hope and redemption. Although there is no explicit reason for this Mishnaic sequence, it does follow a sort of chronological order. Ruth closes with the genealogy of King David, followed by Psalms, which the rabbis ascribed to David, followed by Job, because of a tradition that assigned that book to the time of the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon's court. Solomon is believed to be the author of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, followed by Lamentations, which was thought to have been written by Jeremiah. Daniel, the rabbis believed, belonged to the exilic period, and the last two texts were from the Persian era, except that, well, King David probably didn't write the Psalms. The English name Psalms derives from the Latin Vulgate Liber Psalmorum, or Salme for short. The Latin was borrowed from the Greek Psalmoi, the word which was used as the title for the book in Greek manuscripts as well as the New Testament. It meant a song sung to a stringed instrument, which is essentially the translation from the Hebrew of the word mizmor, which appears 57 times in the book. The Hebrew text never refers to the collection by a collective name. However, during the period of the Second Temple, there was a tradition of referring to all the chapters as mizmorot, but only during the period of the Mishnah is the text referred to as Tehillim, which is weird because of the use of the masculine plural ending im. An individual praise psalm is a Tehillah, and the regular plural form would be feminine, which would mean that this book should be more properly called Tehillot. A common explanation for this is Tehillim was so called to distinguish it from the other informal collections of praises circulating at the time. Tehillim is conveniently divided into five books, each of the first four ending with a doxology, a formal expression of praise to God. For example, book one ends with the final verse of chapter 41, quote, Blessed is the Lord, God of Israel, from eternity to eternity. Amen and Amen. This tradition gave rise to the belief that David, like Moses, gave the Jewish people five books, but David was not the author of the Psalms. Critical scholarship places the existence of a canonized psalm sometime in the 2nd century BCE. 
The Psalms were regarded as an extremely important book, and thus it found its way into translation into Greek for popular consumption. There is evidence of some late biblical Hebrew, but no Greek linguistic influences or Hellenistic concepts. By the time Hellenized Jews were reading it, its text was solidified and its order determined. If you look at the religious worldview of the psalmist, he omits many concepts that were common fare for the earlier biblical prophets, judgment upon the wicked, the end of days, the day of the Lord, in that day, etc., etc. The psalmist never rails against the sinning nation. There are no prayers for the restoration of the Davidic line or for the ingathering of the exiles. If the psalmist defies easy identification, the psalms also defy typology, so many moods and so many styles. The psalms' leading genre is the hymn, a poem of praise celebrating the majesty, greatness, and providence of God. However, the psalmist also offers many laments in his own name or in the name of the community, as well as psalms of thanksgiving. There are also royal psalms focusing on God as well as psalms focusing on wisdom and lessons in improving one's character. Some psalms have a header, a dedication, like chapter 3, which begins, quote, a psalm of David. There are 73 shout-outs to David, 12 to Asaph, a contemporary of David who was part of the temple leadership, 11 to the Korahites, who participated in temple ceremony during the time of King Jehoshaphat. Haman and Etan are also acknowledged once each. Both were leaders of the temple musicians during the time of David. There are also singular shout-outs to Solomon, Moshe, and Yedutun, a Levitical singer in David's time. Only 24 psalms have no header, such as chapter 1, which begins, quote, Happy is the man who has not followed the counsel of the wicked, or taken the path of sinners, or joined the company of the insolent. Rather, the teaching of the Lord is his delight, and he studies that teaching day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose foliage never fades, and whatever it produces thrives. Chapter 2 introduces a little political intrigue, nations plotting secretly against Israel except, quote, He who is enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord mocks at them. Then he speaks to them in anger, terrifying them in his rage. But I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So if you know what's good for you, you will get on the right side of things and fly right. Chapter 3 takes us deep into the moment of pure desperation when David fled his son Absalom's insurgent army. Think of that moment. When the kingdom you risked your life to build, the kingdom you spilled blood for at God's behest, it's all taken from you, not by a foreign conqueror, but by your own son. Quote, O Lord, my foes are so many. Many are those who attack me. Many say of me, there is no deliverance for him through God. Selah, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. He who holds my head high, I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep and wake again. For the Lord sustains me. I have no fear of the myriad forces arrayed against me on every side. Rise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, for you slap all my enemies in the face. You break the teeth of the wicked. I guess we know how that turned out. And on that karmic note, here endeth the lesson. We'll be spending an awful lot of time with the Psalms. Of the remaining 93 episodes dedicated to the Ketuvim, 37 of them are Psalm-related. That's almost 40%. So get ready 
for many, many mizmorim. Remember the Psalms? They're not songs, because they don't rhyme, and they're not good. They're perfectly named. They're not quite songs, they're psalms. It's a word you're meant to miss here. The thing is, for Jews, Tehillim has a very different function. Yes, many of the Tehillim appear as part of the traditional liturgy, specifically the Hallel we recite on various holy days. That's Psalms 113 through 118. The early movement of the weekday morning service samples individual psalms, as does the Kabbalat Shabbat service. Verses from Psalms 34 and 99 are sung while the Torah is taken out and processed before the Torah reading service on Shabbat, and selections from Psalm 29 are sung when the Torah is returned. Psalm 126 is also the prelude to the blessings we recite after eating on Shabbat and holy days, and Psalm 137 steps in during the weekdays. But I wager that most Jews are unaware of this, or maybe they are, kind of passively, but Psalms Tehillim are best known for being a source of comfort and inspiration in times of trouble. Jews recite Tehillim, often the whole book, as a collective effort, as something to do during a crisis, like an illness or imminent disaster. For example, when the Ghostbusters advance on Central Park West to fight Gozer, they are greeted by the faithful who have gathered to pray, nuns in the church steps, doomsday prophets with signs, and ultra-Orthodox Jews who are undoubtedly reciting Tehillim. And it begins as follows, quote, Happy is the man who has not followed in the counsel of the wicked, or taken the path of sinners, or joined the company of the insolent. This first verse raises two issues, one that will dog us throughout this volume of the Tanakh, and one that will dog us throughout our lives. The first is rendering Biblical Hebrew into English. Adonai Ro'i, two words, finds expression in English as the Lord is my shepherd. Hebrew is rhythmically compact, English is not, and translators like the King James make no effort to preserve the Hebrew rhythm. Here's another example. The famous line from Psalm 23 reads in the 1611 translation, quote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The Hebrew is, Gam ki elech lo irara. Eight words, 11 syllables. The English is 17 words, 20 syllables. Beautiful and evocative, but hardly poetic. With Tehillim, we're dealing with a robust volume of poetry. So, Robert Alter renders the first verse as follows, quote, Happy is the man who has not walked in the wicked's counsel, nor in the way of offenders has stood, nor in the session of scoffers has sat. But the Lord's teaching is his desire, and his teaching he murmurs day and night. Which leads us to the second issue raised by this verse, proper decorum as it addresses human frailty. In other words, the much-feared slippery slope. Walking on a way is a traditional metaphor for pursuing a set of moral choices in life. Halakha, the word for Jewish law, shares the same root as the word for walking, holech. This verse follows the rule of threes, with walking, standing, then sitting, with each instance leading to the next. So if you get into the habit of walking with the wicked, you'll probably eventually get a little tired from all that walking, so you'll find yourself standing with them too, which then becomes the norm. So, you know, standing is just a vertical form of sitting. So before you know it, you are lounging with the louts. Game over. This piece of advice embodies the slippery slope argument, a consequentialist logical device. The psalmist seems to be saying that a seemingly insignificant small step, a little walk with the wicked, 
will lead to a chain of related events culminating in a significant negative outcome. The slippery slope argument, however, posits that starting with a small act will lead to a terrible unintended consequence. Or as Tevia said, One little time you pull out the prop and where does it stop? Where does it stop? Where does it stop? But here the consequences are not unintended. We know from the get-go that any kind of schmoozing with wicked people will lead to a bad outcome at any level. There is no middle ground here. There is no transition between categories. One minute you're an innocent little lamb, and the next minute you're a child of Satan. In a sense, if the lesson here is reminiscent of a contemporary classic of children's literature, if you give a mouse a cookie, you know what happens next. And for those of you not familiar with canon, the, the boy gives a cookie to a mouse, and the mouse then asks for a glass of milk and then requests a straw to drink the milk and a mirror to avoid a milk mustache. Then the mouse asks for nail scissors to trim his hair in the mirror and a broom to sweep up the hair trimmings. Then he wants to take a nap, have a story read to him, draw a picture, and hang the drawing on the refrigerator. Looking at the refrigerator makes him thirsty, so the mouse asks for a glass of milk. The circle is complete when he wants a cookie to go with it. But what I've always wondered about the book is why the kid didn't just tell the mouse to bugger off. Was the kid such a mild-mannered Canadian that his politeness prevented him from telling the mouse? Two words, fuck. Pretty easy to understand. Off, really easy to understand. Or did the mouse have such a magnetic personality that he just, he could bend the world to his will and demand cookies? In either instance, the psalmist has sage advice for us. We must cut off the mouse even before the glass of milk stage, and preferably even before the cookie stage. The mouse is a chaos agent, someone who will undermine the existing order if he can. He must be stopped. So no cookies, no milk, and definitely no straw, no mirror, and no scissors, and no nap. In other words, no quarter for mice demands of any kind. Such a person should not regard herself as a curmudgeon or mean-spirited in any way. Such a person, the psalmist tells us, should regard herself as happy for avoiding such a quagmire. Because as we see, walking leads to standing, and standing leads to sitting, and sitting, heaven forfend, leads to mixed dancing. <laughs> If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 154 when we continue in Psalms with chapters 4 through 7.